0: Heavenly Father, you have been gracious to show us the end of your great redemptive story now several times in the book of Revelation. What we will hear today is not new. And so I ask that you would not let it become commonplace to us. Rather, Father, I pray that you would use this teaching from Revelation 15 in the picture that we have of those who have been redeemed that are singing beside the glassy sea of fire and those who will be consumed when you come as the great judge. Show us that final day, Lord. Show us our final day. Give us a glimpse, maybe more than a glimpse, so that it will impact how we live today, tomorrow, and every day until we see Christ face to face. I pray that there's a great seriousness and a great joy commingled as we receive the word today, joy and thanksgiving in knowing that in Christ we truly are secure, and at the same time, Father, having a right warning for those who are in Christ to persevere to the end, lest we face your great plague. I ask, Father, that anyone here right now that knows Christ that is not walking in your ways and therefore cannot have assurance of their faith would repent and turn immediately that they might know they know Christ. For those who are walking in the faith faithfully, Father, encourage them to press on. And for those who do not know you, even if they claim your Son's name, for those who do not know you today, I pray you would use this great passage to save them, that their end will be one of singing and joy and thanksgiving and not one of an eternal plague. I pray, Lord, you would give us great seriousness as we hear this. You were serious when you gave it to John. It certainly made him sober. Make us sober as well that we might worship you and glorify You as You've called. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How will you glorify God? It's a question. It's also the title of the sermon. How will you glorify God? The assumption being you will glorify God. The question is, how will you glorify God? To give glory is to ascribe worth or value or honor to someone or something. It is to feel or to think or to act in a way that reflects the greatness of someone or something. This past year when the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, their fans glorified their team. Most of us had a chance to see that either during the game or afterwards, they, they celebrated their team, they cheered for their team, they bought chief paraphernalia so that everyone could know that they were chief fans, even if they weren't until they won the Super Bowl. They would tell everyone about how great their team, their team, is. You see, all those made in the image of God, and that would be you. We are hardwired to glorify and worship. God made us in his image to worship him. But as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, that hard wiring of worship is still there, but we don't want to worship God in our sin. We want to worship someone or something else like the Kansas City Chiefs. Now as pathetic as that seems, many in fact do. Idol worship is commonplace in a sinful world. What we'll see from our passage today if we have ears to to hear is that on that last day, God will restore all worship to Him. All creation will worship God on that last day. But not all man will worship God in the same way. Not all man will give God glory for the same reasons. For the past several weeks, John has been been given these snapshots of life at the end of God's redemptive plan pieces of information that have filled in human history to help us explain life on earth details. When we get to Revelation 15, he's introducing the last cycle of judgment, the judgment of the bowls, And it is the end of the end as we draw near to the consummation of the book itself. Now we've already seen God's judgment cycles. We've seen two already. We saw the judgment cycles of the seals at the beginning of the book. We saw the judgment cycles of the trumpets in the middle, and now we're going to close off the judgment cycles with the judgment of the bulls and the seven plagues. This is known as recursive parallelism, and that's a fancy way of saying that John keeps getting all these visions that are telling, listen, telling the same story and the same ending but from a different angle. He wants it to sink in. He wants us to go, okay, this is how it ends, and hopefully stir in you a right response. If you don't know Christ, it should be abject horror. If you do know Christ, it should be thanksgiving and joy. But there should be a response if we have ears to hear. Revelation chapter 15 will use Exodus and the Exodus account where God led his people out of Egypt in slavery and into the promised land. John draws upon that to shed light on the final exodus and the final plagues. The final exodus for God's people and the final plagues for God's enemy. So this morning as we begin the cycle of the seven bowls, it is my prayer that God would reveal His glory to us. If He does, if He's pleased to do that, you'll respond in the right way. Specifically, I I, I ask that God will display His glory so that we will know if we will glorify God as His saved people or if we will glorify God as those being judged. As those made in the image of God, the question we will ask ourselves today, and I pray, I really do, I pray that you will be introspective. I pray that you will not make an assumption because you claim Christ that you're in Christ. And I don't say that, my beloved, with anything but great humility because we are to contemplate and test ourselves to know whether or not Christ really is Lord. Gathering on Sunday is not the answer, and it certainly is not sufficient to answer that question. How will you glorify God in the end? Will you glorify Him by being judged? Or will you glorify Him by being saved? I pray the latter for each of us, amen? I want to show you two things from the passage. Number one, the final exodus that we want to be part of and number two, the final plague which we want nothing to do with. The final exodus that we want to be a part of and the final plague which we want nothing to do with. The theme of the sermon is this. God will be glorified by saving and by judging. How will you bring him glory? God will be glorified by saving some and judging others. How will you, be, how will you glorify God in the end? Point number one, I pray you're with me. Verse one, the final exodus, the last saving movement. Verse one, John is writing and John said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So, seven angels and seven plagues, and immediately, if you know your Bible, your, your thoughts should be going to the Old Testament. You should be going to the ten plagues that God executed upon Egypt for not, because Pharaoh would not let his people go. And verse 1 here, this is an introduction to the seven bowls. We're going to see them next week when we get to Revelation 16, but this is an introduction to the seven bowls and the seven angels who will pull, pour these bowls of wrath out upon rebellious man. And it's the last cycle of judgments. It says clearly in verse 1 that the wrath of God is finished. In other words, justice will have been served. Evil will be conquered. All sin, all death. Satan, his demons, evil nations, and unrepentant people will all be cast into the lake of fire, glorifying God as the just judge that he is. In other words, the bull plagues are the end of the end. No more cycles after the bowls. This is the consummation of God's redemptive story. So we're getting near to that place where we say, okay, I understand. I understand how it's going to end clearly. But before describing the seven plagues in detail, John is so wonderful this way. He wants to encourage God's people. He wants to encourage those seven churches that we read about in Asia Minor, and he wants to encourage you today. He wants to remind you that even though the plagues will come and the bowls will be catastrophic, worse than the trumpets and worse than the seals, even though those plagues will come, if you are in Christ, you cannot be harmed. He reminds his people, God's people, that they will be standing, singing, worshiping the Lamb. Look at verse 2. John said, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, if you were here with us from the beginning, then you think, Oh, wait a minute, the sea of glass, that's Revelation chapter 4. I remember that being before the throne of God. And yet we see it here now, the sea of glass, it's mingled with fire. And most of the commentators conclude and I agree that, that that sea of glass mingled with fire represents the infinite gulf between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and that you, you cannot traverse that sea of fire on your own. The sea, of course, represents chaos and death. And fire, you know what fire represents. It represents the very judgment of God. And so here is that gulf. Here is that, that sea of fire before the throne ready to judge The living and the dead. But John also sees those who had conquered the beast. We looked at that the beast and the number of the beast, those who had overcome because of their faith in Christ. This is that symbolic 144,000 that are before the throne, before the Lamb, singing praises to God. In other words, somehow they made it across the sea of fire. Somehow they did not drown, somehow they did not burn. They're standing beside it. Some translations actually say they're standing on top of it, unscathed. They're standing there before judgment, before death, fully alive, before the throne, worshiping God through song. In fact, we're told in the latter part of verse two that they have harps of God in their hands. (laughs) Harps of God in their hands. I don't know about you, but I, I, we, I love the harp. We had a chance to hear the harp played at a conference a couple of years back, and I thought, oh, I would love to know how to play that. Well, one day, you, you may. You may have a harp. Um, because we believe this to be more symbolic than literal, um, the harps represent in the Old Testament joy and thanksgiving in the heart of God's people. And that's even better than knowing how to play the harp, right? Right? that you have an overwhelming joy, an overwhelming gladness in your heart because you stand there. Those who were standing there were standing beside the sea of judgment, the sea of fire, and yet they were unscathed. They were standing before God singing praises to the Lord, praising Him for saving them, praising Him for not judging them. Look at verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Listen to what they were saying. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So John is witnessing this gathering, and we know it to be all the redeemed from Genesis chapter three until Christ comes again, he's witnessing them before the throne spilling over in song. Their hearts are so filled with joy and so filled with thanksgiving, they cannot but sing an old and a new song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You think, well, which one was it? And how are they both? Did they, did they you know, create a mix together and they took the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb and they brought it together? We know that after God delivered the Israelites from the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh, when he brought them out of the land and through the Red Sea, we know that Moses, he wrote a song of worship to praise God for his great deliverance, being brought out of um, the horrors of living under Pharaoh and through the Red Sea and then on to that road to the promised land. Look at verse 3, the latter part of verse 3 again. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And they are declaring, Moses and the people declared that it was God alone who saved them from the hand of Pharaoh. It was God who destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea right before their eyes. And so they said, truly, there is none like you, O Lord God. And here we see that the song of Moses is pointing to the song of the Lamb. The deliverance of God's people in the desert and destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea was a foretaste of the ultimate victory that the Lamb of God would exercise on behalf of God's people. It was through Moses that God led his people out of slavery and death in Egypt and ultimately into the promised land and it will be through Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sins of the world that God will lead His people out of sin and death, out of Babylon and the beast, taking your mark off of the beast and putting the mark of Christ on you and doing what? What is your end? It is eternal life. It is the presence of God. It is standing beside the sea of fire but not being burned. It is standing beside judgment but singing praises to God because you have been saved. This is the picture that John is seeing And these are the songs that are being lifted up. Great and amazing deeds indeed by Jesus Christ our Savior upon the cross. Through the cross we know that God brings eternal life to all those who repent and believe and it's through the cross that God condemns all those who refuse to be saved. Great and amazing deeds indeed. This final deliverance of God's people and the final judgment of God's enemies is so extraordinary in power and glory. Look at verse four. Verse four is a transformative verse. Look at verse four. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so in the song, they're singing, who is not going to recognize you as God Almighty? His righteous acts of salvation and His righteous acts of judgment are so good and so true and so pure that in the psalm they're saying what? All people will come and give glory to God Almighty. All people, saved and unsaved, on that last day, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation literally will bow down and give glory to God for His final act of salvation in his final act of judgment. For then, he will reveal himself to all creation truly as God Almighty, the King of the nations, the Holy One. Utterly holy. That means, my beloved, that all creation, saved and unsaved, all creatures, will see him as perfect And infinite in character and nature. Perfectly and infinitely good. Perfectly and infinitely loving. Perfectly and infinitely just. Perfectly and infinitely powerful. Perfectly and infinitely and eternally beautiful. The one to be glorified. And he will. Worthy of all glory and honor and praise forever and ever because he is the Holy One. He is God Almighty. One day, my beloved, all will see and recognize God as the Creator and Lord that He is, deserving of worship. Even those who curse His name in the lake of fire will glorify Him as the eternal judge. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, this speaking of the eternal glory that will be given to Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? My beloved, John's vision of the redeemed singing songs of praise and thanksgiving in the presence of God is not only meant to encourage you now with that great hope that you can fix your eyes upon, but it's made to equip you now so that you can go through life. You can go through good times and really difficult times with joy and thanksgiving in your heart because you know this is your end. You have a God-given harp right now. You have joy and thanksgiving in your heart right now if you know Christ. And therefore, this vision is to equip us to see that we've been brought through that glassy sea of fire and that red sea of death. You see in the Exodus account, if you know that account well, the Israelites, when they, they fled out of Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind, he decided to pursue God's people, and they ended up with their backs at the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army descending upon them. They had nowhere to go. Pharaoh's wrath was upon them. death was imminent. But this is what we're told in Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Verse 13 Moses steps in. Listen to these words. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that great? Stop crying, stand firm, and see what God's going to do which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, shall you shall never see again. The Israelites, with their backs to the Red Sea, were as good as dead. But you know how the story goes. I hope you know how the story goes. That sea was parted, and every single Israelite, male, female, and child and animal, crossed safely on dry land. God delivered them from Pharaoh's army. But when Pharaoh's army tried, Exodus 14, verse 28, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. God saved his people and God destroyed his enemies. Friends, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb are being sung together because they reveal the the exact same Glorious truth. God bringing himself glory by saving his people and destroying his enemies. That's why in Christ their song is our song. That's why in Christ you can sing that song today, tomorrow, and every day until you see Jesus face to face. You can break out your harp filled with thanksgiving and joy and you can sing, sing, sing unto the Lord That means when you feel like your back is against the wall or maybe you're pressed up against that Red Sea and it seems like everything's coming down on you and you can't make it another day, you can sing this song. It's your song. It means when the temptations of the evil one, which we know are real, are overwhelming you and when the weight of the world is crushing you or your flesh is bringing you suffering through your own sin, You can hear Moses say to you, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. See the work of Christ in your life. My beloved Christ, he has defeated Satan. He has defeated the world. He's defeated the power of flesh. He's defeated your own temptations and all your sins. He is the victorious one. He's conquered your greatest enemy, which is the power of sin and the power of death. And he has brought you through the Red Sea. He's brought you through the glassy sea of fire, God's eternal wrath, and He has delivered you, my beloved, so that you can walk free right now, so that you can live as the free creature in Christ that you were made to be, filled with joy, filled with thanksgiving, singing this song of praise and honor every day, every single day. You've been delivered, and you're on the other side, because Christ bore your punishment for you. In our passage, the redeemed of God, they're singing praises right beside the glassy sea of death and punishment. They're praising God for who he is, the Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, the Holy One. And they're praising God for what he has done, the great and amazing deeds of what? Salvation and judgment. And so just like the Israelites We're destined for death at the shore of the Red Sea. If not for God's intervention, so too will God's people, standing on the shores of death and damnation, sing praises to God forever and ever because Christ has saved them. In other words, my beloved, the death that we deserved for our sins, the eternal fires of punishment that each of us deserve for our rebellion against God, will not touch us because of the great and amazing deeds of Christ, because he has paid our punishment in full. Instead, we have been forgiven and pardoned, and so we will sing, and we will sing. I've often joked that if you come to church on Sunday and you don't like to sing, you're gonna have real troubles in heaven because we're gonna be singing for all eternity the praises and glory of God. We'll sing unto the Lord because we've been spared the unimaginable, truly unimaginable horrors of death and punishment, of the wrath of God. We have been spared, not because we're worthy, but because God is gracious to save. Not one of us was worthy to be saved, but if you are in Christ, He called you and He redeemed you because He is a gracious and loving God. So your heart can be filled with joy regardless of your circumstances. And you can sing today, yes, today, because some of you are hurting, and I know that. You can sing today and every day Not only about the greatness of who God is, but the great work that God has done on your behalf every single day. Now I say that and some of you might scoff and you think you don't know how difficult my life is. And and, and I might not with some of you. But Christ does and so does God. And the great thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and your security in Christ is that regardless of if your day is good or bad, it doesn't take away your place in that choir of the 144,000. It doesn't change that. You know that. If you know Christ, you know that. You know that that end is secure. And if you can bring that end back into your life on those really hard days and weeks and months, then you can sing because the harp will come out and thanksgiving and joy It'll be the result for you, my beloved. We want to sing unto the Lord. If I could, um, if, I, if I had a time machine, I'd, I'd put us all in it today and I'd transport us to that last day. And we would all together get a chance to stand by that sea of, that glassy sea of fire and, and sing to God. If you could see yourself standing there worshiping God knowing what you deserve, looking at your just dessert and that not being yours and instead seeing the Lamb of God and singing to him, if I could transport you there and you could truly see, you could truly get that glimpse of what you truly deserved but what you received by grace instead. I believe that if we came back here today, we'd be very, very different people. I believe that we would think differently and we would relate differently. I believe that the purpose and goals of your lives would likely change dramatically. I believe you would see your friends differently, too. Those who do not know Christ, I imagine your tongue would be loosened and you would preach faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe seeing God's divine justice, but personally experiencing his divine grace, would leave an indelible mark upon you. We want that mark today. We want this passage to do that for us today. That's John's intent. He wants to shake us up, to get us out of that slumber, to get us out of that silly routine, thinking we have all the time in the world when we know that the day is fast approaching. I believe that if you came back after seeing that, seeing what you deserve, seeing the righteousness of Christ you received freely by grace, I believe, my beloved, that you would be equipped to live every day for his glory instead of your own. I believe we would live for his glory rather than our own. I believe you'd be a rock. Someone would say, that's that Christian, that person's a rock, unshakable when the trials and temptations come. And in the midst of those struggles, you'd be singing because you'd be filled with thanksgiving and joy. I believe you'd be less anxious. I believe you'd be more compassionate. I believe you'd be more willing to serve and suffer for the sake of the gospel because you'd no longer be what? Storing up your treasures on heaven, in heaven. You'd be no longer storing up your treasures on earth, but in heaven, knowing full well that that's where you will end up spending eternity. No longer living as a Babylonian, but instead living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. In your darkest moments, my beloved, you can be filled with the same thanksgiving and joy. Because you have already, if you're in Christ, you've already passed through the fire. You've passed through the sea of death. You've passed through the judgment of God. Jesus made that very clear early in his ministry. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said this, Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's the Father, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has past tense. He has passed from death to life already. If you're in Christ, you've made it through. Oh, that's a relief. Uh, that the glassy sea of fire is a bad thing. There was a movie years ago called Family Man, starring Nicolas Cage. I don't know if you saw it. Was one of my all-time favorite movies. It's uh, um, Can't even talk about it. I love that movie so much. It's a single man, New York businessman, entrepreneur, very, very rich. And he loves his alone life with tons of money. And um, through circumstances, he gets what's called a glimpse. In other words, the, the movie picks up. One morning, he wakes up, and he's in someone else's bed. He's not in his New York penthouse. And he finds himself living... He's a tire salesman living in a New York suburb, married to his high school, to his college sweetheart. And he has two kids and a dog. Um, And he's miserable. And he tries desperately early in the movie to get back to his old life, back to that life where glory was all about him, all about his money, all about his power. But as he spends time in this other life, he begins to love it. He loves his wife, he loves his children, he loves his dog. And it's all because the glory had shifted from himself to others. He had been transformed in this glimpse. Well, the movie was a glimpse. And the, the, the man in charge of it tells me it was just a glimpse. And so he wakes up one day and the glimpse is over and he's back in his penthouse. And, and time had stood still. But he was now forever changed. He had seen the blessing of, of giving glory to others rather than bringing glory to himself. He saw the futility of life in Babylon, of of living for himself and how blessed he was to live for others. My beloved, God is giving us a glimpse in this passage of our future place before his throne so we can wake up now. So we can live changed in Christ now. Not as citizens of Babylon, marked by the beast, seeking to make a name for ourselves, engaging in all the self-glorifying trappings of this world, and you know what they are, but as citizens of an eternal kingdom, saved from the judgment we deserve, and seeking instead the glory and honor of the Savior and King who redeemed us. Truly living for God. In all that we do, all our relationships, all our work, all our play for Christ alone. Your final exodus in Christ is guaranteed. And if that is true, my beloved, then you are equipped and empowered in the Spirit to live differently now. The question is, are you? Does that glimpse have any power on your life today? So the first part of this vision is a vision of the final exodus. And it's given to encourage us and to equip us to live lives that bring God glory now in all that we do. But the vision doesn't end there. The vision actually, it ends um, with a terrifying sight. It doesn't really read as much, but we'll see how terrifying it is in the next chapter. We get the vision of the final exodus, and we also get a vision here, John does, of the final plagues, God's final judgment upon sinful man. Point number two, the final plagues. Look at verse five with me. Verse five, John writes, after this, so after the vision of God's people, filled with joy, worshiping the Lord beside the glassy sea of fire, John says, after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now, in the Old Testament, the, uh, before the building of the temple, there was the tabernacle, and that was the tent where God would descend and commune with his people. And then, of course, after Solomon built the temple, it was the place in Jerusalem, the building where God would descend and commune with his people. And both the tabernacle and the, and the temple, they had lots of security measures. They had courts, and they had curtains, and they had means by which God and man were rightly separated for two reasons. One, to protect the sinfulness of man from coming into the holy places of God. And number two, to keep the holiness of God from breaking out and destroying sinful man. So that the, the security measures were in place both for God's holiness and for man's liveliness so we could make, be stay alive. But here John tells us something extraordinary and the the Jew then would have gotten it. It's an extraordinary statement. He said the tent or the tabernacle of witness in heaven was opened. No more barriers. The holiness of God now is exposed to mankind. Now if you remember, we saw this with the blowing of the seventh trumpet back in Revelation chapter 11, remember? It talked about the, the tent being opened and that was indicative of what? Of God's judgment coming that God's judgment was imminent to come upon the wicked. And so it came, look at verse six. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So the seven angels of death who have the seven plagues ready to exer- exercise God's final judgment upon sinful man and sinful angels and sinful nations, they are coming out. Now, if this were a, a Hollywood or made into a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood director would, would probably characterize these angels of death very, very differently, would they not? And they'd be probably be dressed in dark. They'd be ominous creatures, probably ghost-like creatures with uh, faces veiled. But John tells us the exact opposite. They're powerful and just servants of God and described as that. They're wearing pure white linen, so white that your eyes couldn't even look upon it. And of course, that was symbolic of their purity and their purity as messengers of judgment. In other words, the judgment is good. The judgment is just. And they have a golden sash around their chest and that's symbolic of their being appointed and sent by God. If you remember, back in Revelation chapter 1, that's how John described Jesus, remember? He had the golden sash across his chest as the messenger from God the Father. In other words, these final judgments that are coming, and I want you to remember this when we get to the chapter 16 next week, they are, they are grievous and they are hard to hear, but we must remember they are just, they are good, They're being exercised by a holy God upon sinful man for sinful man's unwillingness to repent, believe, and be saved. Look at verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So remember the four living creatures that we were introduced to back in Revelation chapter 4, the magnificent angels the four magnificent angels that were around the throne of God, worshiping God, one of those angels gives each of these seven angels of death seven bowls, seven golden bowls. And in those bowls, the wrath of God would be placed and out of those bowls, the wrath of God would be poured out on sinful man. Now, if you remember from Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, John said that God's wrath would be poured out through a cup. Right? Remember, the unrighteous would be required to drink the cup The wine of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. And we know, if you remember what John said, they would drink the cup of eternal torment filled with fire and sulfur, and we looked at that. Here, the image has just changed a little bit. It's not the cup, it's a bowl. And the reason it's a bowl is that bowl is gonna be turned upside down so that every single drop of God's wrath will be poured out on all evil and sin upon the earth. In other words, this is the final judgment. The wrath of God will be emptied out upon sinful man. No more judgments because once God is finished, there will be no more evil to be judged. All evil, all sin, all death will be thrown into the lake of fire. It will be the end of God's redemptive story. Great for believers. Horrific for those who do not know Christ. Look at verse 8 and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seventh plagues until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished so god has come and he's dwelt in this heavenly temple his majesty his power his glory is so powerful no one can go in because if they do what they will die god has come to judge And no man can stand against him. When the Israelites finished the construction of the tabernacle, that that place in the desert where God would meet with his people, if you remember what happened, Exodus chapter 40, the cloud, it said, we're told, covered the tent of meeting. It covered the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses even Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses knew, if I go in, I die. When Solomon finished building the temple in Jerusalem where God would commune with his people again, we're told something almost identical. First Kings chapter 8, this is centuries later, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Moses, the priest, both unable to remain in the tabernacle or the temple because the majesty and the greatness and the power of the glory of God had come. And it's impossible, my beloved, for a man apart from Christ to enter into the presence of a holy God and live. Not even Moses could do that. Now here we're told that no one in heaven can enter the sanctuary. Look at the latter part of verse 8 again. Until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Until the last plague of the final judgment on that last day is complete. No one gets to see God. The heavenly tent of meeting had been opened. God in all his fury had manifested himself as judge of the earth he descended and he was ready to judge it's very similar to when he came down at Mount Sinai was it not and he said do not touch the mountain anyone or anything that touches the mountain will die God's holiness his justice had come so too here God manifests his glory and power he's ready to exercise his wrath upon all justice and evil So his immediate presence is off limits to enter the sanctuary while God is there is a death sentence and has been ever since Genesis chapter three, my beloved. How many today, how many today attempt to come into the presence of God, attempt to worship God without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior putting a death sentence upon themselves? How many today in churches just like this have come and had a chance to sing and pray and listen and they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior and they're entering into the presence of a thrice holy God? Suicide, my beloved. John chapter three, verse 18. Jesus made it very clear. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned what? Already. Already judged because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So apart from Jesus Christ, trying to enter into the presence of God, trying to worship God is a death sentence. And I'm not just talking about atheists or agnostics or those who worship false gods and false religions. The judgment of God applies to all people, which means anyone who claims Christ and enters a church just like this while simultaneously living as a citizen of Babylon, never being born again, never surrendering their life to Christ, anyone, no matter how long you've claimed the name, you are entering into the temple of a holy God who is ready to judge. And apart from Christ, you will be condemned. Apart from Christ, you stand condemned already. If we profess Christ, but we do not joyfully learn and submit to the word of God, If we say we are Christians and yet we do not pursue Christ in the spirit to live Christian lives, to live holy lives, you're entering into the presence of a holy God without a savior. If you are, even today, if you stopped and you just reflected upon your Christian walk and you said, you know, I claim Christ, I've, I've claimed Christ for a long time, but if truth be told, my career is more important than my family. I spend more time pursuing and engaging entertainment than I do prayer. I think about His Word, but I don't read it. And when I do read it, I don't submit to it. I knowingly do not submit to it. If you say to yourself, I, if I were truly to reflect upon my life in Christ, I love myself more than I love others. God's Word takes a back seat to my wisdom and my opinions. Very simply, my beloved, If your passion for Christ and his church and the things of God run a distant second to all the other passions in your life, you're in danger of encountering God as judge and not God as savior. Attempting to know God or worship God without truly being in Christ, it is suicide. It is a death sentence. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told of the the wedding banquet? Do you remember all the guests that were invited, all those who had come to a saving grace in Christ? They came into the wedding banquet, and it's to represent the the wedding banquet of the Lamb where Christ is reunited with his people, the church. Matthew chapter 22, when the king came in, listen, with all your might, because you might not have a garment on right now and think you do. When the king came in to see the guests at the wedding banquet, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Listen, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This man had entered the temple of the Holy God without the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. He thought he was in, and he was never in. And when the king saw him, he was bound and tossed into the lake of fire. Thankfully, my beloved, this is not how God's story ends for everybody. God does not remain unapproachable. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come into the sanctuary of the living God. They will worship God. They will love God. They'll be loved by God. They will be called in to dwell with God forever and ever and sing the song of Moses and sing the song of the Lamb. In other words, once the bowls are poured out and those final plagues are exercised, God's final wrath and final judgment, Satan, sin, death, and all those who remain in rebellion are banished once and for all into the lake of fire. Whoever remains, whoever's left, who does not perish in those plagues will be granted access into the presence of God, not to be killed, but to commune. The question as I close is this, and I hope you ask yourself with all sincerity, how do you make it in and am I in? How do you make it in to the temple of the living God who's descended in all glory and power. And are you in now? The seven plagues, as we will see next week, they parallel very well the ten plagues that God unleashed on Pharaoh in Egypt when Pharaoh decided to not let God's people go. If you remember during the plagues, during plagues one through nine, God doesn't do anything to protect his people. Remember that? God exercises judgment. And he protects his people without having his people do anything. But not plague number 10. Plague number 10, which you know to be the plague of death, it comes and he calls his people to listen and to obey or what? They would die. The 10th plague was the final plague of God's judgment upon Egypt, similar to these final plagues that we are seeing here in Revelation 15. It was the plague of death. Listen, Exodus chapter 12, this is what God said to his people. God said, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And then he says, I am the Lord. So the firstborn in Egypt of man and beast, Egyptian, Israeli, foreigner, it did not matter. God was going to pass over and he was going to kill all the firstborn unless what? Unless... There was a substitute unless there was a sacrifice for the firstborn and so god instructed his people and you know this story well god instructed his people every single household to sacrifice a one-year-old unblemished lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost to put it on the doorframe and then god said this for those households who are faithful to my word who have the sign of blood covering their house, God said, the blood shall be a sign for you and the house is where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague, which was the plague of death, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Revelation 15? My beloved, on that last day of human history, when God passes over all mankind, the living and the dead, and he brings his final judgment, the ultimate plague of death, eternal death upon sinful man. The only way, the only way you will not be destroyed by that plague of death is is if you have the blood of the Lamb on you. Not on your doorpost, but on you. If you have Jesus' name written on your forehead, the only way that you can be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. That you have, listen, that you've truly surrendered your life. We say that a lot. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We say it a lot. I mean truly surrender. Not you anymore. You've died. You now live for Christ. That's what, that means you recognizing that you're you're sinful through and through. You have no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You recognizing that, you hating that, and you turning from that, and you turning to the cross and saying, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. Grant me full pardon of every sin, past, present, and future, and grant me access into your eternal kingdom. Bring me in through the blood of Jesus. It's real faith that takes you across the glassy sea of fire, that takes you through the Red Sea, It's the real faith that enables those bowls to be poured out and not touch you because you're in Christ. It's faith in the great and amazing deeds of Christ, dying for your sins, paying the penalty, granting you pardon, and bringing you in all the way in. Not to be put to death, but to worship God. It's faith, my beloved that you know you have because it's producing fruit. I know we talk about this week after week but Jesus made it very clear. You'll know them by their fruit. You will know you by your fruit. The guest at the wedding feast without the garment had never been born again. He likely had claimed Christ. He likely was baptized. He likely went to church. He might have been a ministry leader. He might have been a pastor. But he didn't know Christ. He didn't know Christ in a saving way. He was still living as a citizen of Babylon. And you probably heard me at the beginning of the sermon, and it's been on my heart and mind all week. I do believe that the church in the West is greatly deceived in this area. Greatly deceived. We are not an exception to that. My beloved, if we live in accordance with some of God's commands and then we willfully reject others and think that we're okay to enter into the presence of a holy God, we too may be fooled in the end. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciples must what? Deny himself, deny herself, take up their cross and follow me. You can't follow Jesus and willfully, persistently, disobey multiple commands. But for those who do follow Christ, The coming of that last plague means that God's judgment is finished. And when his majesty comes to manifest itself here on earth, we will be able to enter into his presence. All sin will have been put away. God's people will be able to stand in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not fearing death, but what? But singing and worshiping and praising Jesus, the one whose blood has washed us clean. It's washed us white as snow. All right, I'll close. In the end, God will be glorified by saving and judging. The question again for you is how will you bring him glory? Will you bring God glory in the end on that last day by being someone who is judged eternally and cast into the lake of fire? Or will you bring him glory by being one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, truly saved, truly redeemed, truly washed by his blood? You say, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I want you to know the answer to that before you walk out of this place today. I do. If you don't know the answer to that, then the answer is simple. Repent and believe and follow Jesus. It's not complicated. He said, well, I've already made that profession, I've already been baptized, it doesn't matter. Today is the day of salvation for every single soul. Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. If you're not sure, then don't leave here today without repenting and believing and wait as long as you need to wait to know that you truly know Christ. You'll be filled with joy and you'll be filled with thanksgiving and you'll find yourself singing with the harp of God in your hand because you know that Christ is yours. You'll know, and you will bear fruit, my beloved. You will bear fruit. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O kings of the nations, O king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen? What a glorious song. Let us sing it with our lips every day and forever. Let's pray. Father, use this passage in the sermon preached to do the very simple yet glorious work of bringing all who are here in this sanctuary to stand beside the glassy sea of fire to sing praises to you. I pray, Lord, you would not let a soul walk out of here unless they know they are part of that 144,000 choir. I pray, Lord, that for anyone who is here who is deceived, that you would take away that veil. Help us, cause us to see, Father, that it's more than getting baptized and attending church on Sunday. That you call for our entire lives to be surrendered to you. All of who we are. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us that. That we might truly know that we belong to Christ. And because we're in Christ, we belong to you. Father, use Revelation 15 to give us a glimpse to permanently change us as people. I ask that for myself, Father. and all my brothers and sisters that we would truly know. Make us humble to that end that we might ask such difficult questions. I ask it, Lord, for our own souls, but I ask it ultimately for your glory. We know that we will glorify you in the end. I pray for all those present that it will be a glory through song rather than a glory through judgment. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.